Hey everyone, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat, a podcast recorded on the unceded lands of the Gayamago people by me, Liam Miller. He, him, he is a minister in the Uniting Church in Australia. My guest today is Aaron Griffith. Aaron, welcome along. Thanks for having me. So good to be here. So for those who don't know Aaron, Aaron is Assistant Professor of History at Whitworth University over in the US, uh, where he teaches American history and history of Christianity. Uh, he's a former postdoctoral fellow at the John C. Danforth Center on Religion and Politics and an instructor at Washington University's Prison Education Program. He has written for the Washington Post and Religion News Service, and the book we are discussing today is his new book of 2020, God's Law and Order. The Politics and Punishment in Evangelical America, uh, which is out with Harvard uh, University Press, and you can pick up uh, wherever you get books, and hopefully this uh, interview will make you want to do just that. So, Aaron, the book, like you kind of talked about early on, is about what you say is the quintessentially American gospel and the law amalgamation, the work of soul-saving witness and spiritual concern within the context of severe punishment all of which characterised evangelical influence in prison and criminal justice in the 20th century. So it's this book of a religious history of mass incarceration and also, in its own way, a history of modern evangelicalism uh, explored through this lens of concern about crime and punishment. So I guess (laughs) where where, where did this idea to explore this come from? Um, What got you kind of... You know, you kind of talk a bit in the book about, you know, your personal interest in in thinking these questions through. Um, Yeah, so how did it kind of develop? And was it one of those ones that you were like immediately like, yeah, this is definitely enough for quite a full comprehensive treatment of a book? Or was it just kind of like, oh, I'm in a rabbit hole and I this is going much deeper than I thought? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I... I had a lot of rabbit hole moments uh, while writing this book. I'm sure a lot of historians, you know, have have those moments where you're in the archives or digging through somebody's papers and you see something and you're like, it turns into something else. Um, I had a lot of those. We can talk some about those um, because they definitely changed the direction of the book. Um, But as far as what got me interested in the topic more generally and and how I saw the book coming together early on, uh, I was in a doctoral program at Duke um, Divinity School uh, where I was uh, studying American religious history. And I needed to find a topic to write my dissertation on. So a dissertation is like this big paper thing that you write at the end of your studies. And uh, I was, I knew that I was interested in the history of evangelicalism. And I uh, had been reading like, all of these wonderful books uh, through my coursework and my comprehensive exams uh, by people um, like Darren Dochuk and Molly Worthen and my advisor, Kate Buller. And, uh, and I saw how there were so many different narrations of modern American evangelicalism and politics and culture going off in tons of different directions, showing evangelical influence on any number of, of issues uh, and, and the ways evangelicals have been influenced. Um, and I started to think about uh, what other issues perhaps are worth considering. You know, a lot of evangelicals get talked about with reference to uh, abortion, mm-hmm. um, capitalism, uh, free market economics, things like that. Um, 
And I uh, was was trying to think about, okay, what other ways of, of understanding evangelicals are there? Um, from the other end of things, though, I uh, was taking courses actually during my master's and then uh, my master's program on prisons and prison ministry. And I studied with a theologian or a, a biblical scholar at Duke Divinity School named Douglas Campbell, um, who's a scholar of, of Paul's letters in the New Testament. And Douglas is very interested in prisons and prison ministry. And I was working with him some and taking courses and through his influence was reading books on the history of America, the American prison system. Mm. Um, you know, books, some of which are, are very sort of familiar to a lot of, to a wide audience like Michelle Alexander's, uh, the new Jim Crow. Um, and I started through both of these, uh, moments, seeing a possible uh, opening of, I wonder what evangelicals were thinking about prisons. Mm. What were they thinking about criminal justice, especially uh, given that over the course of the 20th century, evangelicals in the United States are growing in their cultural and political influence and prisons were expanding and growing mm. from this, especially in the second half of the 20th century. Um, and so I just, the puzzle I wanted to then solve was like, what do those two realities have to do with one another? What happens if we tell the story of um, modern ev American evangelicalism with an eye towards issues of crime and punishment? And on the other hand, what happens if we tell this, as you said, and Salina used in the book, a religious history of mass incarceration. There's so many ways, so many important ways of narrating and understanding the massive uh, prison system that is present in the United States and the ways that it has its, um, you know, it, it is so rooted in our politics and culture and the logic even of, of um, how we do things. Um, there's economic explanations, there's political explanations, there's cultural, there's racial explanations of how this all comes together. And I was like, what does religion have to do with this? Mm. Not because we need to forget all that other stuff, but how does religion intersect with all those other realities? Mm. Um, so that's the the sort of big academic puzzle that I was wanting to fool, uh, to. to to sort of messed with early on my doctoral work and that turned into my dissertation and then turned into the book mm. later on the personal side of it though. And, and I'm open about this in the book and, and I've talked about this elsewhere is that I was uh, in my master's program um, beginning. Then I started volunteering in a prison. Um, I was doing prison ministry work with a local first with a local church and then with a, eventually with a prison ministry close to close to uh to Durham North Carolina and I was volunteering with this ministry it's a ministry I still stay in touch with today um they're doing amazing work uh Alamance Orange Prison Ministry is the name and I was going into prison and seeing first of all just prison mm -hmm. seeing like what is going on in these in these facilities uh, that are often hidden from the public eye I was meeting the men who were incarcerated there and hearing their stories, hearing the very uh, just remarkable um, stories and, and uh, just ways that they understood and saw the world. Um, and doing that in the context of church, of 
uh, a religious gathering, not always with Christians. There were many different religious uh, traditions represented in these gatherings. But I started to, to think about how um, this academic puzzle also had personal resonances, not only for me, um, but for the fellow uh, ministers and, and Christians who are doing this work uh, mm-hmm. in prisons. And I saw this book in some ways as just a way to uh, hopefully, my hope is to, to give resource, a resource for people who do prison ministry, people who are interested in thinking through what their church's relationship to the criminal justice system is and mm. should be. Mm. Um, and that's, that's the personal side of this as well. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. So I guess I'm, I'm curious, because you mentioned some of those rabbit holes and some of the surprising ways. Was, what, was there anything that, but, you know, because I think that's um, often, I guess, the way, with, you know, when you start a project, you often have to have some broad idea um, that, one second. I just realized my mic wasn't plugged in. It'll be recording, but I'm just going to, this will improve the sound quality. Awesome. <laughs> Very 90-something episodes in, just a true professional at uh, <laughs> this stage. <laughs> um, and to, and to prove that, I'm going to leave all this in. Um, so right. just keep me keep me humble. Um, so you know, I think you know, with, with you, you start approaching, you go, okay, yeah, it's tough to have some broad ideas. Or yeah, I think this is how it might connect. Or, this could be my broad argument and what this. And then you start to read, and sometimes a bunch of that gets like kind of confirmed and fleshed out. And sometimes it goes, oh wow, did not see this whole piece coming. Um, was there anything particularly? I mean, I'm sure there were lots, but anything that kind of strikes you as particularly surprising? Um, that you, that you kind of encountered along your way, something you just really didn't expect and that, that jumped out. Yeah, uh, a lot of examples, and this for me is like the most exciting part of, of research. Um, it's a very nerdy thing to say, but it, no, it's, it's true. Like I, I just love, like you think you make, you make a guess, you think you're going to go a direction and then sometimes that's confirmed and it's great. And mm. uh, the evidence you, you find is, totally it all works out but uh often you find stuff that just puts you in a different place um and for me i think two big examples of that uh were as i was getting started with the project um in the dissertation stage i was reading great books that really helped me orient myself to this by people like winifred sullivan whose book prison religion is a sort of like a, a legal study and ethnography of of um modern uh, very, almost contemporary American evangelical influence in a prison in Iowa, uh, a book by um, books by theologians like Mark Lewis Taylor, uh, who were writing about in a, in a very theological way about prisons. And uh, I was getting oriented with those texts on Tanya Erzin's book, uh, work on, on prison fellowship um, and, and other evangelical prison ministries. And I thought, okay, as a historian, here's these theologians and um, anthropologists who are writing about this stuff. My goal and what I'm going to do is I'm going to sort of trace the earlier history, and I'll start in the 1970s. And the 1970s were important for me because that's when uh, the largest prison ministry in the United States, Prison Fellowship, uh, which is led by Chuck Colson, I'm a former uh, Nixon administration um, figure. Uh, Prison Fellowship begins in 1976. And that for me was like, all right, this is going to be a very much a late 1970s, 1980s, up to the present story. And 
the more I got into, and, and I thought I was just going to focus on prison ministries for the most part. Like that for me seemed like a big, a big enough story. It's something to, to uh, work on. And the more I got into it, the more I started reading evangelical um, periodicals, the more I started talking to people who were involved in prison ministries, um, especially have been involved in the 1970s and 80s, the more I realized this story begins earlier. It doesn't start in the 70s. It doesn't start with Colson in prison fellowship. Mm-hmm. There's all these other ministries, first of all, that are have, going on before this, um, that Colson inherit, inherits their mantle in some ways, I think. But it actually... Uh, you can't talk about prisons and prison ministries until you talk about the policies and the cultural changes that help make these institutions mm-hmm. that help, uh, that quite literally put people inside these, uh, behind bars inside these places. And so I, then the project started unfolding of not only talking about prison ministry, but talking about evangelical support, uh, for policing, mm. evangelical support, and influence in political uh, changes that are happening in the 1960s that expand the criminal justice system. Mm. Um, and uh, that earlier sort of law and order shift, and it's not just limited to the 60s, but um, it, I sort of even began earlier in the book. I saw that we had to tell this story together of not only the prison ministry story, but also um, the ways evangelicals are thinking about uh, crime and punishment um, in, in other ways. Uh, the other uh, part of this, and this is perhaps the most counterintuitive aspect of the book, and it's something I still um, wrestle with some, is as I was going this route of thinking about evangelical influence in law and order politics. I, what I expected to find as I was reading various evangelicals who were writing or speaking on criminal justice issues was a very punitive approach. I expected them to be like tough on crime, lock them up, throw away the key, uh, just very punitive through and through. And what I found, I did see that, a fair amount. And, and I write about that in the book. Mm. Um, but a lot of what I saw was, uh, and, and this is a big part of the, the story I tell in the book is a conception of the criminal justice system by evangelicals as a humanitarian conversionist transformative place and institution that policing and prisons and rehabilitation is good for people. It's not just about punishing. It's good for them. And this was a humanitarian sentiment, I sort of figured out, that was very much in line with the origins of the penitentiary itself uh, in the uh, early 19th century. Uh, the penitentiary, the rise of the penitentiary in, uh, in the United States was um, really, really led by humanitarians who wanted to create a institution that was going to help people that mm-hmm. was going to move the United States away from this, what they saw as a barbaric punitive, uh, form of justice with beatings and putting people on the stocks. And they wanted to create a, a 
penitentiary where people could be transformed and changed. Mm. And I think this is also the story of how a lot of evangelicals and Americans more generally in the 20th century understood criminal justice. Now, it obviously wasn't that, yeah. <laughs> but that was the that was the hope for it, which mm-hmm. I think actually is, a, is key for understanding why the criminal justice system is so uh, deeply seated in Christians' imagination and their hopes mm-hmm. for what crime and punishment or for what punishment can be. Um, and I think it explains a lot of, of why uh, we are in such an intractable place in our own, um, in my own context in the United States with regard to prisons. We cannot imagine something different because there are so many humanitarian hopes baked into uh, this, this system. Oh, that's very interesting. Yes, thank you. And I guess it's somewhat um, ties into one of your, you know, a key argument in the book, you know, because like, how did this come about, you know, in, in some simple ways you say, well, because it mattered to evangelicals, like the, the idea of crime and punishment and the transformation of people um, mattered because, you know, not everything does, right? You know, and, and, and you can't uh, care. So I think that was a really interesting kind of observation that it was just something that that mattered. And I guess one thing I was thinking about is that you kind of talk about in that, that early part of the book as you're reaching earlier, there were these kind of quite mainstream attitudes that there was an increasing lawlessness, like kind of the interwar period, um, there's increasing lawlessness, increasing chaos, and, and needs to be controlled and dealt with. And one of the reasons they think that there's this lawlessness, and correct me if I'm getting this wrong, is it's linked to increasing secularity. So things are becoming more secular and they're becoming more lawless. Thus, you know, and even you've got to say it's not in necessarily this like very direct then, thus we need to bring people back to God, but that the, it informs the attitudes, it informs bringing in that crime at least needs to be dealt with and one way yeah. is about is 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 this so i guess i'm, I'm curious about that link of the the, the 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 lawlessness secularity and how that leads to crime needs to be dealt with um and evangelicals then going and we can be part of that in some way yeah right yeah so the the book um the very first chapter of the book is actually not about evangelicals in, in the sense that i think most people think about them people like Billy Graham, sort of post-World War II up to the present. Uh, It's about this interwar period, or really uh, the late 19th century up to um, the Second World War, um, this this, this sort of broad terrain of the chapter. And yeah, there I I really try to show how Christians and really religious people of all stripes, um, Protestants, Catholics, and Jews, uh, are increasingly becoming concerned with this downward spiral of America into lawlessness. And that's, mm-hmm. that worked itself out in so many different ways and in so many different arenas. You know, there's, there's prohibition is a big part mm-hmm. of this. Uh, concerns about lynching um, and, and race uh, are, are baked into this. Uh, but the, the overarching story is that liberals and conservatives in these various traditions, they disagree on all kinds of ways to understand crime. They have so many different views as to what we should do, but crime, lawlessness, disorder are all a shared concern mm-hmm. here. Um, and the trial that I, I talk about is a trial in the mid-1920s that I think crystallizes a lot of this, um, which is the trial of Leopold and Loeb. 
which is our, is this duo, uh, these two um, young men in Chicago who are on trial for murder. And this trial is, to me, was just so, there were so many echoes of sort of these other trials of the century that are happening around the same time, like the Scopes trial, where everyone is not only invested in like, what's the verdict of, did these guys do it or whatever, um, but what is this, crime signify for understanding our our current cultural moment and uh in this in this trial clarence darrow is involved and he's also involved in the scopes trial which is interesting and people are really trying to link leopold and Loeb's murder to the fact that they are products of the university of chicago which is seen as this sort of modernist uh bastion and <laughs> that they had been reading friedrich nietzsche and so we're, you know, we're involved in all these sort of controversial intellectual projects. And I, I think that for me, this was emblematic of how lawlessness and secularity were linked in the public imagination. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was a linkage that liberals and conservatives were very comfortable making, even as they diagnosed it beyond that differently. Mm-hmm. And that sets up the post-war era quite well for evangelicals like Billy Graham, who were wanting to make their mark, who were wanting to capture hearts and minds uh, and sell out stadiums for their evangelistic events and get on the radio and get on television. Lawlessness uh, is a very, um, it's something I think they were genuinely concerned about, but something they could uh, frame as part of America's sinful uh, the sin problem facing America, which is why very quickly into the fifties uh, and sixties evangelists like Billy Graham start talking about delinquency and mm. gangs and gangsters. Billy Graham makes a movie about a gangster coming to Christ uh, that I, I write about in the book. It's a very, it's a, it's a fun watch. I don't know if you can actually watch it on YouTube. Um, uh, but it's it's about this gangster named Jim Boss who works with the mob as a wiretapper, and uh, he comes to Christ as a Billy Graham crusade. I mean, it's a real real story uh, of of this guy. But Billy Graham and his ministry team know that there's something there. There's something resonating mm. uh, in the popular imagination. Yeah, I think that's also really key. So you talk about that the evangelicals here are not like. Because um, we often think evangelicals are framed as like cultural reactionaries, often um, with a lot of the in, the in the political discourse. Because this was actually a mainstream concern. There was mainstream support for for we need to get this under wraps and we need to expand you know, law and order and crime punishment. It needs to be that's America. That that's 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 just mainstream support, and it's tapping into that, and then maybe is it utilizing it for a particular. They look moving toward conversion and, and 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 framing it as sinfulness, but it's not like they were introducing whole cloth. This idea of um, crimes a problem and and needs to be dealt with. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, I uh, I think this has bearing even on just our contemporary moment. This is something mm-hmm. I I think about a lot. Is um not just with evangelicals, but even with people like Donald Trump uh, and sort of the movements that he represents, I think that there is a temptation to understand American evangelicals and and, um, Donald Trump and uh, 
Christian nationalists or, or whatever route we'd want to go as somehow foreign or different than the noble ideals of the, main, the American mainstream, as somehow mm. aberrant. And my argument is a no. There, this is not a backlash. This is not a uh, somehow a different thing. This is actually – they're drinking from the same um, trough, as it were, as, as uh, sort of the animating center, I think, of, of American life. And mm. this is why – you know, to use the, the example of, of crime and punishment, Donald Trump and Joe Biden are posited, I think, by many Americans, as these very different options politically uh, for the United States. But on issues of like policing and prisons, historically, they're not that different. Mm-hmm. Um, there, you know, Trump called himself the law and order candidate in the last election, but there were few politicians more law and order uh, in the 1980s and 1990s than Joe, Joe Biden. As a senator, yeah, and mm. and I think that that dynamic of seeing evangelicals and uh, the political movements that resonate with evangelicals as um, not as backlashes, but as part of a consensus, mm. is is really important um, for my book's argument. But I think yes. it also just helps us make sense of um, the where we are today. Mm. I think what's interesting also is you talk about, so it comes from the mainstream, but also by having that kind of evangelical support, there's a way of making making these things neutral, right? Like that this actually isn't yeah. really a political stance to, to support this kind of um, push for law and order, this push for um, incarceration, and um, that this is the way that you transform a person and, and thus a society. Like it, it creates a kind of neutrality around it by, by being wedded to... Um, evangelicalism because evangelism itself kind of creates, you know, purports this kind of neutrality within uh, as American yeah. kind of thing, which I think is important. Totally. I, I think neutrality is a, is a great word. Um, and I would give a shout out here to people like uh, political scientist Naomi Murakawa, who I really learned from here. Um, her book, The First Civil Right, is very helpful for showing and I draw on her work in, in my book, um, how aspirations of neutrality, especially along uh, lines of race, racial mm-hmm. neutrality, mm-hmm. were so crucial in the development of the modern American criminal justice system, yeah. um, where there were hopes that policing and courts and prisons could uh, be reformed and could serve as ways to secure people's rights, and mm-hmm. that these were we could move away from, you know, again, like you hear this, this is the same stuff that people were saying in the early 19th century. We can move away from the, the relics of the barbarous past and, and move towards a very neutral, streamlined um, system that can help people. And I think that uh, that was powerful, not only for evangelicals, um, powerful for many Americans. But in the book, I, I really try to show that for evangelicals, this is why uh, so much of what they are doing connects with other people that aren't evangelicals. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of you know the issues that evangelicals are getting involved in in, the, in you know sort of the post-World War II era, they're butting heads with other sectors of um, the populace. So, for example, 
evangelicals and Catholics um, are butting heads on issues like, uh, you know, the campaign of Kennedy, um, evangelicals and, um, you know, liberal Protestants are butting heads on any number of things. And I like try to show how all of these groups in some ways are, they are more often than not, especially on the lay level, I think understanding crime as a problem to be solved. And evangelicals really find an opportunity to lead the way um, on this. And that is because it's seen as neutral. It's seen as just a normal American uh, issue of concern. I'm, I'm curious if that neutrality helps, because I was thinking, so you, we kind of talk about how post-war, the evangelicals kind of find this line between the liberal and fundamental uh, line and, and pushed into, we've got to do a crime, but it's, it's still more on maybe a kind of personal conversional, I want to come back to conversion more broadly in a bit. Then the 60s and 70s, there's kind of a shift to, actually, we're now going to be you know, explicitly supporting politics, politicians, and movements about crime and punishment, about the expansion of the criminal justice system and its increasing militarization. You know, it's, it's an actual explicit, we're going to support that. Um, and so I'm curious a bit about that move in general, and particularly how that move doesn't, isn't seen as betraying the broader um, emphasis on small government, right? And the yeah. broader emphasis on government needs to be out of our lives. It's like, yeah, it's like that for everything. But here, absolutely, we can put millions and millions of dollars and um, breach all, you know, and, and all kind of civil liberties can be thrown out the window because this, you know, and does that become, is that a, because of neutrality or is that just because it's it's almost like the 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 ends are so important in that particular case, or is it just seen as a totally different, like that's like in maybe the same way military is that that's like, that's not really government. It's another kind of thing entirely. Yeah. I, I think this was the, the question over the size and, you know, scope of the state is, is really interesting to mm. me because as, uh, in the 60s and 70s and 80s, there are increasing numbers of conservative politicians and evangelicals are lining up behind a lot of them um, who are arguing using big government and big government programs, um, especially like the Great Society and sort of social welfare programs as these foils of, you know, things we got to get rid of. And this is what, like, you know, I think really brings Reagan into power as both a governor in California and then as the president um, is, is making this very effective argument that government is the problem, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, that the size of the state is uh, not only wasteful and, and wasting taxpayer dollars, but it's you know destroying personal initiative and everything. Uh, even as <laughs> Reagan, as a governor and as a president, is growing the size of the prison system and mm. um, expanding policing. So I, I think what helps make sense of this in part is uh, this focus on individual accountability that people like that leaders like Reagan, but also evangelicals are very invested in to say, well, you, you did the crime. You're going to serve the time. Uh, our, prison system, our justice system, is simply reacting to individuals who have, uh, as individual agents, um, who are making bad choices. 
um, who are dangers to their communities. And I think that that individualistic calculus still works within that uh, framework, even as the state is exploding in size and scope um, and in terms of the money that's being spent on it. But this is why uh, my final chapter of the book is on Chuck Colson, not so much as prison minister, but as criminal justice reformer. And this is the argument he makes. He says, I'm a conservative. I am someone who believes in small government. And it is crazy for conservatives to line up behind these giant government programs called prison. <laughs> like, that's what they are. And uh, yeah. he's like, we are uh, betraying what truly makes the conservative tradition in America great because we are, um, you know, we are investing in these uh, bureaucracies, these criminal justice mm. bureaucracies that are nothing. He sees them as fully in line with the sort of the welfare state. And I think that gets him into some trouble, but I think this is a very effective argument he makes for many evangelicals that mm. uh, I think has resonance today, even um, for mm. better or worse, where reformers on the left and the right who know that something's amiss in the justice system say that uh, we need to um, make this more efficient. Mm. We need to cut expenses. We need to maximize um, you know, the taxpayer dollar uh, and what it's going for here. Mm. And I think then the problem, of course, is that potentially that reduces everything to this uh, just very cost-benefit kind of mm-hmm. equation. Um, but I think it's at least philosophically consistent with um, you know, what yeah. someone like Colson was arguing for. Mm. So, so we've had kind of this idea of neutrality being important and then you've introduced here this, the, the importance of individualism. Um, and there's two ways I want to go with that in a second. Well, I want to go two ways. First, I want to go here, which is, so the evangelical movement that you're talking about, you know, you're focusing predominantly on white evangelicals. The prison system is, is predominantly black uh, and around, you know, it, it's um, in terms of inmates, and that, and that obviously grows increasingly across the back end of the 20th century. Um, and yet, you know, so and much has been speak, spoken about about the kind of um, evangelicals talking about being, you know, a color color blind approach, which you know fits with both the neutrality stuff you've been talking about, the individualism, um, but obviously, you know, has been shown by many works, elides all kinds of social and structural evils that, that that contribute to this. So so I'm curious about the balance, how it all that changes over the time. Um, you know, the, yeah, how, and because and in some way, you know, I think you, you pointed out earlier, so the, the Caliban frame um, adds to the issue, right? That, that, that it doesn't, you know, and obviously people have made this point, doesn't help. So yeah, so I'm just curious a bit about about that, the way, you know, race plays into the particularly religious history. Because as you said, people have approached this whole, conversation from race, how, how that informs yeah. this kind of piece. Yeah. I think something there's, there's a couple of things that happen um, that create these conditions for evangelicals. I think one is that they, they simply uh, after the civil rights movement, um, many evangelicals, like Billy Graham, abandon the segregationist uh, 
sentiment that previously, I think, characterized a lot of um, white evangelicals, especially in, in the South. And Graham becomes much more willing to, uh, and, and he's doing this before, you know, the 1960s, um, but he uh, is way more interested in issues like race, racial reconciliation, and um, putting uh, black evangelists on his staff and uh, speaking about um, America's racial problems. And, and he's not the only one. Like, I think a lot of white evangelical leaders uh, come to recognize that, like, there, there are problems here. And not only um, problems historically, but, but in the present. And the racial reconciliation movement is, is very big for a lot of evangelicals, especially in, like, the 80s. I, I actually... Um, you know, I think there's a great piece in Christianity Today uh, that was written by Daniel Silliman that came out today, I believe, on promise keepers, uh, this evangelical men's movement, which the name and the, the goal of the ministry was about like sexual purity and like uh, men being faithful to their wives. But a lot of what they did and talked about was racial reconciliation. Black and white Christians learning to, uh, you know, white Christians repenting for the sins of the past and um, moving forward in a way where, where they could work together. Uh, and I think the, a lot of white evangelicals, um, from the sixties on are trying to figure out what it means to worship and do advocacy in, uh, a, in a nation where you could put it cynically, where you can't make the same segregationist sort of claims anymore. You cannot be overtly mm -hmm. racist anymore. That's a, a negative way to put it. And I think that there are some people who were that cold and calculating, mm -hmm. but I think on the positive side, there were a lot of white evangelicals who were just like, wow, something's wrong. We've got to fix this. Like our churches are all white. Uh, there's all these issues that are defined by, um, uh, you know, by race that are, are showing our blind spots. We got to do something about this. The problem, though, is that uh, I think through the colorblind frame that was posited to say that we need to just not talk about race, we need to just see each other as individuals, we need to just simply love one another and reconcile as individuals, um, it doesn't matter uh, what your color is. That moved, not only moved uh, white evangelicals away from structural considerations um, of the ways that race intertwined with any number of, of issues relating to the economy and lack of access to education and political uh, power, I think it also, and this is the argument I make in the book, <clears throat> set evangelicals up to support expanded policing of uh, predominantly African-American um, and non-white communities. Um, mm. Because uh, for evangelicals, they saw the police and expanded criminal justice, uh, the expanded criminal justice system um, as, these are not structural racial concerns. These are simply places where people are breaking the law. So what do you do with people who are mm -hmm. breaking the law? You lock them up. 
And that's what's good for these neighborhoods. Evangelicals, I think actually some of them saw policing as a good thing for non-white communities, as very much part of that humanitarian impulse. And this was, uh, this really came home for me through a guy named John Anderson, who I write about. Um, he's a congressman from Illinois. And Anderson, his career as a public figure, I think, exemplifies all of this, where he early on in his career uh, was very conservative and very much a what we might call like a culture warrior um, mm-hmm. or even a fundamentalist. Um, he, you know, proposes like an amendment to the Constitution early on in his career to get the United States to recognize like Jesus as, you know, the something like recognize that Jesus is uh, the sole ruler and of, of the land or something like that. Um, it doesn't go anywhere and people kind of like roll their eyes at it. But over the course of like the late 50s and 1960s, Anderson changes. And he moves away from this culture warrior mentality to a much more open, moderate, evangelical faith. And he starts to see how he had been wrong on past issues, like of his sort of Christian nationalist um, aspirations. And he has a change of heart on race. And he's like, we have to uh, support the, the work of the civil rights movement. We have to do away with these um, racially discriminatory laws that have been in place for so long. And he becomes a really key uh, conservative um, Republican voice in supporting the 1968 uh, federal housing bill, um, which is sort of this one of these last pieces of civil rights legislation that go through. And he says, part of my shift here was because I was like learning more about my faith from places like Christianity Today, these like evangelical publications. He sees this as very much a Christian Mm. um, part of his testimony. But at the same time he's doing all this, Mm. he's becoming more supportive of law and order, Mm. of saying that crime is a problem, that Mm. we need to expand the uh, the policing and the the criminal justice system to deal with these issues Mm -hmm. to secure a more racially just society Mm -hmm. um, even. And I think that this, for me, this is all in the middle of the book. Like this just sums up so much of uh, how um, I think why the um, not only our prison system has grown and, um, the way it has and why uh, it has caught up so many disproportionately poor and people of color within it, uh, but why it hasn't been seen as a bad thing for so long mm-hmm. and why even today there are politicians who are saying we don't incarcerate enough people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for that. That's, that's really helpful. Um, I mean, the book is so rich. There's, there's so much we haven't even been you know, got near covering. And even one of the main, you know, um, points of the book is about how important conversion, uh, evangelist point of conversion plays in, in, in so much of this and, and the actual, like, you know, ministries in prison and, and, and seeing, you know, people being transformed there, how much that is an emphasis. Um, but because we're running short of time, I, you know, I'm just you know, curious to kind of talk a little bit about where you end, um, which, you know, kind of goes a bit back to where, you know, 
part of your impetus for writing was your own experience there. And, and one of the things you talk about is the fact that evangelicals do show up in prisons. Um, mm. And I've heard like kind of this, uh, you know, talked about before where people might say like, you know, um, liberals, you know, have a, you know, maybe a better idea, you know, better, better um, politics about prisons and criminal justice, but they never actually go to them. Um, and, and, and evangelicals have a worse idea, but, but are actually there. Um, and, and so in some ways your book is, is kind of this, you know, within it, as you say, is this encouragement to those who are showing up or who will be there in the future to think about the way that, as you say, coming from a lot of this stuff, as you say, is tied to we care, you know, caring about people, humanitarian ideas, but because they're not thinking it, you know, it's not being looked at with this broader lens, um, end up supporting things that actually are counter, counteracting, you know, what they're purporting to hope to do. Um, so I guess there's this sense of just that, I mean, I love the very last line of the book, um, but uh, about you know, conversion and playing on that again, but there's this, uh, you know, this idea that those who are there, this book is this resource to think again about how to be there or, or what to do in those, those, you're there and what you do about when you're not there about, you know, transforming what's going on. Yeah. I, um, I really uh, think that what people often ask me, like, okay, so what should I do? Mm-hmm. Like, what, what they, whether or not they've read my book, they'll, I'll, this will often come up, like, if we're talking about, um, you know, criminal justice issues or prison problems or whatever, like, what's the, the thing to do um, practically? And I think like just going to a prison mm-hmm. is the first thing to do. Um, getting to know people who are incarcerated uh, or maybe thinking about who you already know that's been affected by the justice system, because chances are, you know, somebody mm-hmm. um, whether or not they've been incarcerated. Um, but I, I think that there is a, I think there's a move in a lot of, more critical circles that are critical of evangelicals to say like, Oh, well they, they are so focused on like the individual and the personal, they have to like get a bigger Mm -hmm. uh, systemic or political consciousness. And, and I actually think that the personal uh, starting there is, is great. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Go into a prison and get to know the people inside of the prison and learn from them, become their friends, hear their stories and uh, allow yourself um, to be transformed. And to be, I mean, I'll be a little theological here, like allow yourself to see what God might be doing in those mm. places already and how you can be a part of that. Mm. Uh, and I think that is a very powerful place to begin and to be sustained by as we do the work um, that addresses systems, that mm. addresses the policy our like punitive politics um, that addresses the size and scope of our, our system. I, I think that like the, this was so brought home to me because I interviewed like tons of prison ministry leaders for this book. I like was spending tons of time, like in archives, prison ministry archive collections and, uh, I just came away time and time again, just so moved by the commitment and work that um, people, evangelicals, uh, what they were doing in prisons, like whatever your theological commitments or or whatever. Like, I I think I was very um, struck by how 
not only genuine, but um, compassionate and caring evangelicals were. And sometimes that got them into trouble because it blinded them uh, to things. But I also think there were, there were so many moments I saw of like an incarcerated person writing to an evangelical ministry and saying like, y'all came to my prison last week and you led a worship service and I like can't stop thinking about how like wonderful that made me feel because you showed up. And I think that, that there's something there. I think I really think that that's that's there's something real about that. That's an important place to begin for evangelicals. Like we need that. Um, we need that not only as evangelicals, but I think as Americans, like to realize uh, a personal connection to these places, to not push them out of our field of vision, to not marginalize them any more than they already are. Um, and I think that's a good place to start. Thank you for that, Aaron. The book, folks, I hope you'll all be very inspired to check it out. It is great. It's like, it, it, it's, as I said before, it's so rich, but it's really readable and, and, and fascinating and, and well-researched. And it goes in so many places you wouldn't expect, like, you know, as, as it's, a, it's a cultural history. So, you know, you find yourself in all different and, and fascinating um, places along the story. So please check out God's Law and Order, The Politics and Punishment in Evangelical America out with Harvard University Press. So please check that out. And Aaron, thank you for coming on the podcast. Is there is there anything else that you'd like to uh, promote, plug, draw people's attention to? Uh, no, not really. I, I'm so grateful for this conversation. I would just encourage your listeners that if you, if you are interested, like check out the book, but, um, you know, and, and let me know if you do read it, like you can see, you can find me on Twitter or go to my website and let me know what you think about it. But also there's so much work being done uh, by other scholars and, and thinkers and activists on these issues too. And I've got one behind me right here, America on Fire by Elizabeth Hinton, which is on policing and urban rebellions. Um, I mentioned the work of Naomi Murakawa, uh, Michelle Alexander, um, read all of it. Like if you haven't, <laughs> this is a, this is great um, mm. stuff. And uh, please, uh, though, if you do read my book, let me know what you think about it. Um, and uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Great. Thank you, Aaron. And uh, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, I'll uh, see you all next week. Bye.